Hello, everyone. Warm welcome to Intersections, where our focus is on dissolving the boundaries, the boundaries of inner and outer, of uh, you know, business and social, of East and West, of science and spirituality, of, of all kinds, as a way to help us, um, when we dissolve those boundaries, see things in a newer and broader light and be able to explore our full potential our full potential as individuals, as organizations, as communities, and as humanity. One of these boundaries that is beginning to get more dissolved today is that between business and society, you know, between this notion of like making money versus this notion of doing good. And our guest for today, Melissa James, has a front seat in witnessing and shaping this transformation this dissolving of this boundary. And so I want to take just a moment to introduce you to Melissa and uh, then invite her into our fold as well. Melissa has been recognized as one of the most powerful women in corporate America today. She got her bachelor's in economics from Yale. She went on to get an MBA from Harvard, has been a storied force in leadership at Morgan Stanley uh, for over 25 years in various leadership roles, including now the vice chairman of the global capital markets. She also co-leads the Environmental, Social and Governance Center for Excellence at Morgan Stanley, where the organization is seeking to do research and ultimately offer advice and guidance to its clients on this advancement of environment, social and governance causes. She has received wide acclaim in both the business world and beyond for her success and her leadership, including from Black Enterprise Magazine, recognized as one of the top 25 most powerful Blacks on Wall Street, most powerful women in corporate America, as well as one of the most influential against women Black leaders in business. She's been featured in a whole range of media, and so it's a real privilege and honor for us to have her here with us in our fold as well today. And, and here's a quote from Melissa. The dual pandemics last year, both a health crisis and a racial one, have shone a light on the S-pillar of environmental, social, and governance. This is a moment in time where many investors and corporations want to be part of creating lasting and meaningful change. You know, I think that's an inspiring thought to start us off. And so on that note, let me invite into our midst, Melissa James. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, real pleasure. Melissa, I mean, just for uh, our audience's benefit, could you take a moment to describe like the genesis of the center of excellence that you have at, uh, at Morgan Stanley and your motivation in taking on this mantle to lead it? Absolutely. So the firm at Morgan Stanley has been committed to ESG stewardship for many years, really back over a decade ago, before it was popular on Wall Street to have a group focused on this. We established what we call our global sustainable finance team um, back in 2009 um, with the recognition that this was going to be one of the major secular trends that was likely to impact the financial services industry and the capital markets more specifically. Um, and so we really, I think, were at the early stages of this um, evolution. But what has happened in the more recent period is that the trend has really accelerated. And we felt that in addition to all the other things that we had put in place, including establishing a chief sustainability officer and really focusing on our own stewardship by basically being the first U.S. bank to make a net zero financing commitment, being one of the first U.S. banks to make a plastic waste resolution, we've done all these things from a leadership perspective. But we felt that given the acceleration in the trend and the focus on this area of activity, we needed to make sure that for our private side clients in particular, meaning corporations uh, and, and governmental entities that we cover investment banking in our capital markets practice, that we were really bringing the ESG lens to our client dialogue around our traditional investment banking product suite of debt underwriting, equity underwriting, and also M&A advisory. And that's when basically I was asked to head up this effort to ensure that we could bring the deep domain expertise that had been established in the firm over many years to our client dialogue, um, specifically around uh, these product areas. And it's it's been great. It's really been uh, a very exciting time to be associated with this growing area of, of activity. 
I want to dive deeper into that very strong sense of ferment and excitement you and others are feeling about this. I think it seems like Wall Street has been at the kind of leading edge of uh, inviting the workforce back. Could you just weigh in on that a little bit? How is that going? Absolutely. Well, Hatindra, I will say this. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, people think of financial services and of Wall Street being about uh, numbers and uh, analytics. But at the heart of it, Wall Street is really about relationships and people more than anything else. And at the end of the day, I think people need, we're social creatures, and we need the ability to basically interact physically with one another. So we've been back now for about six to eight weeks uh, in the office, fully staffed for all our vaccinated professionals, and have had the ability as a consequence of having kind of everybody back in the office to really have re-engage and uh, have that social uh, connectivity that's so important to what we do, so important to the you know, innovation and creativity and the formation of new ideas that we really depend on effectively to bring the, the best thought leadership to our client base. So it's, it's actually been a great change. You know, we also are a business that relies heavily on young talent coming into the business from undergraduate campuses and from business school campuses. And we are a business that really teaches people by doing. It's an apprenticeship business where people learn by doing. So the ability to have the interaction that we are so accustomed to with our workforce, broadly speaking, including the most junior professionals who are just starting their careers or at the early stages of their careers is really important to our culture and to uh, the overall productivity of the institution. So it's been, it's actually been a lot of fun to be able to resume, if you will, some semblance of normalcy in terms yeah. of how we conduct our activities. Well, I'm certainly rooting uh, for you all to continue to thrive and succeed at this and uh, be, uh, be a data point and an example for other organizations to be able to take that step as well. Now, of course, we all know the Delta variant is here and, you know, everyone is revisiting the questions about like what is uh, safety in today's time in terms of group aggregations of people indoors and outdoors and everything. Um, and so it's a moving target. It's a moving target. But yeah, I do hope that we can all get back to that very soon. When you did come back into the office, did you find it to be that smooth uh, transition back into the old grooves or or did people show up and um, was it a little bit, I don't know, awkward for the first few days or something? Yeah, no, surprisingly, it's been um, a relatively smooth transition, I would say. And that's in part, the senior leadership has been coming in occasionally, not throughout the pandemic, but I would say for the better part of much of this year, right? And so I think, you know, we have offices, we were able to kind of come into our offices with all the appropriate controls around temperature checking and symptom checking and also social distancing and, and mask wearing, et cetera. So I think many of us had been doing that, but we've been doing that really in isolation, not with the benefit of our teams or with the benefit of a lot of our colleagues, which sort of left a sense of isolation or emptiness, if you will, um, associated with kind of physically being here. And so now that there's the buzz back on, I work on a trading floor, for example, now that the buzz is back and there's critical mass, if you will, um, it's it's a great feeling. So I think we are surprisingly, uh, it's, it's been pleasantly surprising to me how well people have adapted to being back. Now, obviously, as you say, with the Delta variant, I think people are watching very carefully. And I think that we have told our workforce that they should basically do what they feel comfortable doing. So for those people who, for one reason or another, don't feel comfortable, you know, we certainly are allowing for flexibility for them to work from home or from wherever they are situated. Um, and we are also encouraging people that if they feel more comfortable being masked when they're in the office, that they should do so. So we're trying to ensure that people understand that everybody has a different tolerance level, everybody has a different kind of risk appetite, everybody has a different health um, situation or circumstance, and we need to be respectful and mindful the you know each individual's comfort level. All right. Well, thank you for giving us a glimpse into uh, what so many and all of us are really in some ways agonizing over as business leaders. Coming back to ESG, and in particular, if you're open to it, maybe we can focus on S in particular, since that's one of the freshest, newest, I think, uh, factors, right, that uh, has emerged uh, in particular in very strong and sharp relief over the last year. What do you see as the critical 
factors uh, around the social advancement that business has to be uh, critically invested in today. What are aspects of that S that are starting to get active currency, active support by investors, things that are very, very much you know, shaping the CEO agenda? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as you noted in the quote that you uh, put up earlier of me, I definitely am of the view that, and I think it's been evident that, you know, the dual pandemics of a global health crisis and a racial crisis that we experience in this country and more broadly in the world have really shown a light, as I said, on the S pillar of ESG. And as a consequence, I think businesses uh, really uh, appreciate much more how social risks or social considerations are both risks and opportunities that need to be managed. And I'd say one of those uh, risks and opportunities that is getting a lot of attention is the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So clearly those dual pandemics have really laid bare many of the structural inequities that exist in our society, whether it be in the realm of education or healthcare or income. And as a consequence, I think there's a real call to action on the part of the private sector to do its part effectively to help create a more just and equitable society. So I think that is an area that we're seeing tremendous amounts of interest in on the part of all of our clients, really, on both the buy side and on the sell side, real focus on this issue of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and really more specifically even around racial justice. Right. I uh, remember just a few months ago here in the United States, there were some CEOs who came to a very visible place of taking a position on even certain voting rights laws that were happening in Georgia, for example. And yet uh, it also brewed some controversy you know, for uh, some of those organizations in some quarters. What is the risk that uh, businesses face when they are leaning into some of these topics? Is it, uh, is it very black and white in terms of the fact that, look, this is where the world is going and this is, uh, this is what's right to do anyway from a moral and a conscience standpoint? Or are in some of these areas, CEOs starting to feel a little bit like out of their comfort zone in terms of how they think these things through, how they move from just being business leaders to also in some ways being like uh, keepers of the social conscience? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So what I would say is that I really do think that we have experienced an inflection that I think um, I'm hopeful will continue, which is that I believe business leaders and CEOs are actually much more comfortable these days talking about some of these issues than they have been historically in the past. Because I think there's a greater recognition and appreciation for the idea that to build a resilient and successful business long term, you need to have a focus on a multitude of constituents. You cannot just be focused exclusively on the pecuniary interests of shareholders, for example. So, you know, it goes back to even the business roundtable, right, where, you know, the purpose of a corporation back in 2019 was redefined to be that of serving a multitude of stakeholders, not just your shareholders. And I think with the advent of that statement and some of the other things that have transpired since, including the things that we just referenced last year, I think there is just a much greater appreciation for the fact that businesses have an obligation to the uh, serve the, the communities in which they operate. As a consequence, I think you've seen a real surge in corporate social responsibility as an example, right? I mean, many companies have gone out and made all kinds of pledges and really upped their game in terms of philanthropy and various initiatives that are designed to essentially help improve the communities um, that, in, in which they, they operate. And I think that you're going to continue to see this governance model of multi-stakeholderism, where just as Larry talked about in his letter to CEOs, Larry Fink, where uh, people are really thinking about not just their shareholders, but also their employees, their customers, their regulators, certainly, and then more broadly, the society at large. Um, and so I'm encouraged by the fact that I think there is been uh, much more recognition and acceptance of this idea that you do have to speak out on certain issues. You know, I mean, I think the challenge 
And I, you know, I had the good fortune of actually interviewing Larry Fink earlier this year. And I asked him the specific question about how does he decide like what issues he should speak out on, right? And he made the point that, yeah, no, BlackRock gets asked and he gets asked in his current capacity to comment on, you know, just about anything and everything. And that you do have to decide what things really matter to your stakeholders. You know, I think you have to have a very good sense of who are the various interested parties and constituents that you have an obligation to serve. And you have to constantly be asking yourself, are you serving those constituents appropriately? Are you doing each of them justice? And in some instances, that will necessitate you taking public positions on certain topics that are of grave importance to those constituents. Seems like um, our leaders need to go back to school in some ways and um, really develop a much more multifaceted, nuanced uh, understanding, right, of uh, what it means to be the stewards and leaders in, in today's times. And I can only imagine what, what an opportunity there is for leaders who are already naturally in that state uh, and, and yet what a leap it might be for certain others who have grown up perhaps with a certain point of view as to the aspects of their self, such as the financial and the strategic that they need to really hone and master to be really good at leading a business versus now empathy and the heart and social sensitivity and kind of like a moral view of what uh, what life and society is about and connecting that with, uh, to your point, the pecuniary and other interests of the business. Suddenly, all of these things are starting to become so central. No, I think that's absolutely right. And look, I think that, you know, the reality is that, and time will tell, one of the reasons why I say last year was an inflection point is I think the data sort of substantiate this idea that, you know, good ESG stewardship, it actually pays to do good, right? I mean, you not only are doing the right thing morally, but you're also doing well by you know, your constituents, including your shareholders. So if you look at basically ESG strategies, they really outperform traditional strategies in equities last year by about 4%. And if you also look at the data over a longer time horizon, you see that companies that are really focused on good environmental and social stewardship, generally speaking, have experienced lower downside volatility by about 20% over looking over like the last 15 years. So I think there is more evidence to substantiate the thesis that there is a correlation basically between good ESG stewardship and financial performance. And I think that is what is starting to be appreciated that you know you want to do good not just for the sake of doing good but also to do well and you know we're seeing that show up in the data to a great extent now i think time will tell you know i get asked all the time about you know well is this a cyclical thing what happens of course in a bull market maybe that is the case and you know we went through this recessionary period um over covid and we had a flight to quality and as a consequence of the flight to quality um, naturally people put emphasis on some of these uh softer more intangible things but will that really persist throughout the cycle and so i think it remains to be seen but one thing i would cite is you look at a lot of emerging growth companies you know a lot of new we we spend a lot of time Morgan Stanley working with emerging growth companies and taking them to the public markets, debuting them to the investor base for the first time. And a lot of emerging companies, particularly the ones that are most disruptive and experiencing tremendous levels of growth, are very focused on these issues of good environmental and social stewardship. And if you look, for example, just around this whole concept of multi-stakeholderism, there's a growing trend towards some of these companies, particularly in the consumer space, coming to market as what's called, you know, with B Corp certifications or as what's called a public benefit corps. And these public benefit corporations basically have a special charter effectively and a different fiduciary obligation than a traditional uh, C-Corp, which is a multi-stakeholder approach to governance that essentially says they have to serve not only the interests of their shareholder, but the interests of other stakeholders as well, including their public benefit purpose. So these B these uh, PBCs or public benefit corps, as they're called, also have a stated public purpose that they have to abide by as well. And so I think you're starting to see a lot of high growth emerging companies come onto the public markets and really exhibit this very high commitment and level of environmental and social stewardship. And that makes sense if you think about also some of the other secular trends that are going on in, um, in our country, the focus that there is from the millennial and the Gen Zers in particular around this trend, many of whom are going into entrepreneurship and are innovating and at the helm of some of these fast growing companies. I think there's a mind uh, shift that's happening generationally as well. And that 
mind shift is going to ultimately also be accompanied with a wealth transfer that will happen over the next several decades to these younger generations. And that's uh, another force that's likely to result in a continuation of this trend. You know, I remember reading in a piece of social science research that um, the way cultures change is that like, it's not that people change. It's that the next generation just tends to have like a different set of values from the previous generation. And at some point, you just like hand over power and authority to that generation. And uh, so your point about millennials, et cetera, is I think very, very spot on for me. I, I think the way for us maybe to think about like what the future is look like is to keep studying that that next generation of teens and people in their 20s as to w- what sentiments are they bringing, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, employers now, I mean, you know, we look at our business as an example and, you know, talent is our most valuable asset. And so we are constantly trying to recruit the best and the brightest to Wall Street. And we're recognizing that they care about different things than the previous generations cared about. And people want to work for organizations that align with their values. They want to work for purpose-driven organizations. And if you don't offer that up as a value proposition to prospective employees, you're not going to be able to um, attract, retain, and develop you know, the best and the brightest talent that's out there. So I think that's absolutely right. So I think I look at the my children as an example. And so I think about what they tell me all the time and how they're preparing essentially to assume the helm, if you will, of leadership in society. And they're very focused on these issues. Yeah. One thought that this sparks in me is when it comes to those of us who are from a different generation and um, have had certain grooves in our mind about like the way the world is supposed to work and what business's role is supposed to be, you know, in the past. And then we come across this tsunami of like this double pandemic, as, as, as you're calling it. And now we wake up and we're a little bit shaken up and we're wanting to get like invested in this new uh, social movement. But at the same time, is it coming more from just purely an intellectual appreciation of the fact that this is where business is going now? Or is it coming from a really heartfelt place, a really soul stirred kind of place? And uh, it reminds me of the story of Ashoka. He was almost a contemporary of Alexander. Alexander had come, conquered parts of India and then left and he had just passed away and then a few years after that is when Ashoka was born and he ended up making a lot of conquests in, in India and becoming the, the preeminent ruler in, in India at that time and then suddenly he inflicts this war on another like state that he's trying to conquer and then starts to get exposed directly to the wounded, the dying soldiers, the widows that are going to be left behind, the kids who won't have their father anymore, etc. And so the legend goes that he is so swept up in remorse with uh, what it is that he has inflicted over the course of his career that he just completely changes his heart. And he starts to realize that the the responsibility and duty of a king is not to rule over his or her subjects, but to actually serve his or her subjects, right? And so he transitions into a whole very luminous chapter of his monarchy, where he is spending all his time looking out for the welfare of his people, running programs for the welfare, uplifting their consciousness with the right kind of spiritual teachings and all of that. And so that transition that he made from that like very conquering oriented kind of like leader to this one who is a lot more about just protecting his borders, but then ultimately serving his people. That's his transformation story. And sometimes I wonder if our fraternity in the business world may also benefit from just like doing that level of deep soul searching that what is it that we have done as humanity? Uh, Where have we come to and how are we really hurting in ways that we haven't in the past paid attention to, but from now on we commit and recommit to the fact that it's going to be a different future that we're creating. Yes, it's because partly we'll make a lot of money doing that, hopefully, because all the financial models are starting to suggest that these things really matter. But actually, even beyond that, there's just like this great sense of purpose and meaning I'm feeling from wanting to be a contributor to building this better future. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that to some extent, that is what has happened last year. I think that the tragedies of this healthcare pandemic and the tragedy of the George Floyd murder did exactly what you just described. I think it really got the country and the world's attention and it got, and that included really the business community. And 
uh, I think as a consequence, uh, the business community has been, they're more woke, I mean, at the end of the day, they're much more woke than they were prior to these events occurring. And there's been a lot of research now that's been done to sort of put a finer point on some of the disparities that exist in our society around healthcare, around education, around income inequality. And I think, you know, the business community recognizes that they have to play a part in helping to level the playing field and helping to close some of these gaps. And so I think there's been a call to action, basically. And I think it has resulted in people causing, uh, you know, feeling a, a, a tremendous sense of having to be introspective around just their whole raison d'etre, their whole purpose and being, and really reflect on that and uh, think about, uh, you know, how they can contribute to changing the world. I look at the, as an example, you know, what our own CEO, James Gorman did coming out of George the George Floyd murder, where he really, I think, went on a listening tour to some extent with many of the senior leaders around the firm, many of the people of color in particular, and as a consequence, you know, took some very decisive action, including standing up this Institute for Inclusion, which we endowed with $25 million to basically start really focusing on a lot of issues that we see in society that need to be addressed, educational attainment, as an example, focusing on also trying to spur uh, activity in the black and uh, minority underserved business community. So thinking about what can we do from a products and solutions standpoint ourselves to help really uh, black and uh, minority owned businesses thrive and to create more wealth in that community. And then also looking at our own internal workforce and efforts with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so this um, initiative that he put, uh, you know, underway is just, you know, one of many examples, I think, of the way in which corporate America has tried to respond to, you know, the experiences of last year. And so the hope is that this doesn't die, right, that this continues to really accelerate and to result in kind of lasting change. I mean, there's, there's a lot of work to do, right? And I think that lest we not forget, I mean, I we did a, a webinar with immediately following the, the events of, of George Floyd, where several leaders of, of the firm, myself included, were interviewed by uh, by our then Vice Chairman Tom Nides, who's now gone on to be the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. But he did an interview with several of us, and many of us really spoke up about like not letting George the George Floyd murder be no not, not letting him die in vain right and so I think that we have to make sure that we don't forget that moment that awakening that we had that we don't go back to sleep and that we actually continue to do things that we know need to happen in this society to create a more just and a more equitable world and that and in turn, I think ultimately will also contribute to longer term, more prosperous growth for the country. I love it. Uh, Melissa, that was uh, such a thoughtful response to um, to the Ashoka story. In some ways, it's like an inversion kind of metaphor that I have where in, in that story, it was the deaths of like tens of thousands in that epic battle of Kalinga that turned around the heart of that one person, Ashoka. And in this case, it is that murder of that one person, George Floyd, that has turned around millions of hearts. So powerful, so beautiful. Thank you for really helping frame it in this way. And before we fully kind of transition out of this, Melissa, because I'd love to actually also talk about your own personal journey. Is there any like story of this kind of organizational shift or transformation that has been playing out that particularly like warms your heart that uh, would be rewarding for our listeners to hear from you? Well, there's so many. I probably would cite just the example of so many of our young people, basically, who have now taken it upon themselves to really help the organization kind of lead the way. So as an example, we had a black managing director in our sales and trading division who uh, initiated a program that's now being adopted across all of our institutional securities business called the Morgan Stanley Experienced Professionals Program, where basically we've had a targeted lateral hiring initiative around black professionals specifically, bringing them into the organization. These are individuals who've had, let's say, two to as many 
he has 10 years of experience working in other industries and who are looking for a career change and whose skill set we think is transferable to this business, but who heretofore may not have had any experience working in financial services or working in the investment banking industry. And we're bringing them in to our various businesses, whether it be equity research or capital markets or fixed income sales and trading, and we're employing them for a period of two years, really giving them an opportunity to be an apprentice, to learn the business, and then depending on how the two-year period goes, there could be longer-term employment opportunities for these individuals. So this has allowed us to really accelerate the number of individuals of color. You know, one of the issues that we're trying to do in building a more diverse workforce is kind of widen the funnel and get more people in the door. And we've had a lot of programs historically that we have had for our new talent, our campus hiring uh, from either business schools or undergraduate institutions. But this is something we're doing kind of at the lateral level with more experienced professionals. And it's yet another way for us to um, get access to a highly talented pool that is diverse. And so that is an example of something that just one individual uh, took the leadership to really initiate in his own division. He got buy-in from a lot of other constituents and he was able to really almost start a movement and put these place, these, these programs in place uh, programmatically across many different businesses. And so I think this this is the kind of leadership that can lead to real uh, lasting change. So there are any number of examples, um, Hintindra, that I could cite of, of initiatives that have, have taken off as a consequence of people showing individual leadership, picking up the mantle and taking action. I, I love the possibilities that your example shows that uh, one doesn't have to wait for the direction to come really just from top down or a program to come from top down, but one can in an own sphere of influence you know, think about sort of what can I do to move the needle and, and then just do it. Well, what a great example. Uh, thank you for sharing. So I, I want to go back to like my first connect with you. And uh, this was the moments where we were at Morgan Stanley and I'd been privileged to come and speak about leadership uh, in some more formal way through my research and they'd invited you to come in to actually be the lived example of like what you get when you actually live these principles and for a while I was just quiet and just listening to you and it really had an impact it had an impact on me to see someone so grounded someone so just comfortable right in her own self and yet being part of a milieu that I know it's not easy to thrive and flourish and succeed in. It's a world full of a lot of high achievers with uh, tremendous talent and ambition and to have um, not just kind of made it to a very special place in that community, uh, in Wall Street and Morgan Stanley, but also to, yeah, just do it from a place that is so grounded. That was something, Melissa, that really struck me about you. And it has been obviously for me a key force in being drawn to wanting to um, know you more. And uh, it's led to a number of very meaningful conversations between us, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. And I don't want to miss this opportunity for our audience to have them get that sense of your personal journey as well that I got to witness in that room. So if you're open to it, can we take the next maybe 20 minutes and just like talk about your personal journey? Absolutely. Maybe we just start with something very basic, Melissa, which is like, what was it like growing up as Melissa? Sure. Well, happy, happy to talk about that. I will say, um, and we, we can come back to this, but all of us that are in positions like me, I think stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. So a lot of my ability to be, bring my full self to work, to be an authentic person, to be, you know, to have the success that I've enjoyed has been a function of, you know, the community and the, the, of, and the of, of mentors and sponsors that I've had over the years. So, so we'll get to that. That's a really important ingredient, I think, to personal and professional success. But I was very, I mean, speaking of standing on the shoulders of other people, those who came before you, I mean, I was a very fortunate young woman um, growing up. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I'm born and raised there. I still live there to this day. I had parents who were fortunate enough to be highly educated and provide access to really good education for me. So I feel like, you know, I always tell people, you know, I had the best education that money could buy. I had great schooling at the primary level. I had great schooling at the secondary level. And so I really feel like education is the foundation really for personal and professional success of any kind because I feel that by educating yourself by becoming an informed you know citizen that's really how you can appreciate the myriad of perspectives that it takes to essentially create fair, just, a successful, productive world and society, right? I mean, any of us who've been in any of these educations of higher learning that 
are really focused on you know teaching about leadership, citizenship, critical thinking, have had the good fortune of basically learning as much from our fellow students as we did from our professors, learning as much from each other as we did from those who were there to teach us. So I think that for me, I feel very fortunate. I grew up in a household with a father who was a, a medical doctor who had basically gone to um, school in Europe. He had gone to medical school at, in Switzerland at the University of Zurich as a consequence of basically being Black back in the 1950s and having very limited access to medical school opportunities here in the States. So he emigrated elsewhere. Um, and had that experience and as a consequence really came back sort of a global citizen, multilingual, spoke three different languages, French, German, and English. I had a mother who grew up in a single family household, but because of, again, her education and her focus on her scholastic achievement, was able to attend a historically black college or university at Fisk and then go on to get her doctorate and a PhD in anatomy and physiology from the University of Chicago. So I had parents who were highly educated and had the good fortune to be so as a consequence of serendipity as well as their own industriousness. And that is really kind of the foundation, basically, that helped me to be the person that I am. And when you have parents who were able to achieve that kind of educational attainment and yet came from much more adverse circumstances than did you, it really gives you an appreciation for the fact that to those who much is given, much is expected, and that you really can be and do anything you put your mind to, that you really can overcome adversity and obstacles, and education is one good avenue or means to do that. I did not know this part of your background. So thank you for sharing. Wow, that's a powerful and uh, blessed start. And it's inspiring to hear the, uh, you know, the journey that your parents uh, had on their own. I mean, those could be two interesting and powerful stories unto themselves as well. When you look back at that time, besides the gift of education and the importance of education, what is like one value or core belief that uh, really got forged in those perhaps like dinnertime conversations with your family? I would say um, one of the things that my parents were very focused on was hard work. Hard work, they would tell me, is its own reward. And I always tell my children that hard work is its own reward. I think that you get um, out of things kind of what you put into things and you should work hard for yourself as much as you do it for anybody else because it is its own reward and that you get fulfillment out of actually doing a good job. You get satisfaction and you also get gain mastery of something that then, you know, help build your confidence, which in turn builds your confidence. And I think having confidence and, and feeling good about yourself and self-esteem is such an important part of success. I look at this industry, I mean, you talk about, you know, some of the challenges or some of the issues of being an African-American woman, as an example, in a business that has been historically dominated by white men. And I think you know, I had a colleague of mine once tell me, you know, one of my many mentors that, you know, this business is really a confidence game at the end of the day. You know, we're in the business of giving advice and we're giving advice to very powerful and influential people that have a lot of responsibility out there that they are in charge of. And to be able to have them trust you and respect you and feel like they want to take your advice, you have to be confident in giving that advice. You have to have a point of view around issues and you have to be able to substantiate your point of view. You don't always have to be right, but you definitely have to be to have a perspective on things and to be able to back that perspective up with, with facts and information. And so, and you have to be able to do that in a, in a real a confident way. And, and I think one of the challenges for minorities in organizations, women and people of color and other minorities, is that if you are the only one who looks like you in the room, that in and of itself can basically uh, undermine your confidence. So I think there's a special effort that needs to be made when you're a person, a, a minority individual or, or somebody who is different than the norm. There's a special effort that needs to be made to ensure that there is a culture and a, 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 of inclusion that allows that person really to have a voice and to for, you know, enables that person to really be able to develop the kind of confidence that they need to be considered competent and good at what they do. So I feel very fortunate again to have learned from my parents that that hard work is its own reward and to put that work into kind of building my network of relationships that have in turn then helped me develop some of these intangible skills like the confidence that I need to be successful organizationally. Wow, I'm almost seeing like an equation emerge from what you just said. There's hard work as an input 
and that hard work then leads to a higher level of mastery and attainment. And that then leads to greater success in those relationships and then more confidence from that. And then you're in a position to not just be confident yourself, but also reassure others and help uh, make them feel more comforted in your presence. Because on these very hard and high stakes issues, you're exuding a certain aura of confidence that helps them then feel more comfortable in taking advice from you. Uh, which in a high stakes, high end professional service environment is so critical to success. So step by step, what a beautiful step by step model. And I'll make one other point that I often talk to people about, Jindra, and you may have heard me say this before, but I think about Linda Hill's research and David Thomas's research. Linda Hill's a professor at uh, at HBS, a black woman tenure professor at HBS, and was um, has been a longstanding head of the leadership uh, initiative at, at Harvard. And then David Thomas, now um, the head of Moore, the president of Morehouse College, but pre Previously on the faculty at the at Georgetown, and and you know I, I often think of the research that they talk about where they say stars are made; they're not born. This idea that basically people just come out of the womb and they're destined for greatness is just not true, and that it's this you know the research and the data substantiates the fact that it for um, in a business context it's this combination basically of your competency coupled with your network of relationships that then in turn get you access to stretch assignments. And those stretch assignments in turn enable you to build your competence more and that um, gets you more exposure to more people. And so that grows your network. And it's this virtuous cycle basically of combining your competency with your network of relationships. And in turn, that's what catapults you through the organizational hierarchy. So I think the issue for women and minorities often is that they don't have access to that same network of relationships. And so they don't have that same opportunity to build their competency and have that virtuous cycle work in the same way. And I think that's the issue that organizations need to really focus on to help. You know, that's why they look, you know, people look around when you're looking for a successor to be the CEO and you don't see any women who can be the CEO. It's because the women have not been groomed to be the CEO over the last two decades. Right. And mm -hmm. so what needs to start changing is that we have to be much more intentional and purposeful about grooming a diverse set of people to be at that place where they can ascend to that top job at some later stage in their career um, because they've had access to that network of relationships and those stretch assignments that have built that competency that makes them qualified to take the top job. Well, in your own journey in getting there, you've lived through decades and a period where these kinds of ideas and this kind of a more collective awareness was still emerging. It was not as uh, broad-based as, uh, as you've said, in particular, over the last year, we've seen organizations awaken to. And so it, it mustn't have been an easy journey. It mustn't have been an easy journey. And I'm curious if you look back at it, if you can point to, yeah, some of the most uh, like pivotal moments in that journey where perhaps you uh, you faced a certain constraint or a struggle and you could have just retreated or just um, given up in a sense on on the system, but something made you kind of move forward rather than sideways or backward. Could you could you talk about a moment or two like that that could be instructive for our, for our audience? Well, I know the one that you and I sometimes talk about and I've shared with you in the past. And I'm actually, I have another one that I want to talk about, if you don't mind, which is I think about the first time that I was up for promotion to managing director. And I did not get promoted the very first time that I was up for promotion. And I often tell these stories to a lot of people to let them know that it's not always a linear journey. And I had been one of these people that had been promoted on the fast track every single year, you know, that I was up for promotion. And when I didn't get promoted, the head of the department came to me and said, Melissa, I want you to go around and talk to you know these individuals about why you didn't get promoted and help sort of cultivate relationships with them so that you're in a better position for next year because I want to see you get promoted next year to managing director. So I did that. The first gentleman on my list was a guy who was a managing director at the time in capital markets and he was a gentleman who a white gentleman who had basically um, had a reputation throughout the department as being incredibly assertive, aggressive, probably the most aggressive, assertive person in our department at the time. And one thing he said to me was, you're too aggressive. And I thought to myself, wow, that's strange. Okay, like you talk about, I mean, how hypocritical is that? And I thought this is just a classic example of somebody basically seeing behavior in a woman and in a black woman in particular, that is identical to behavior that white men exhibit, but perceiving it differently because it's coming from a black woman. And so I was like, I sort of discounted it. And I kind of went on to my next person on the list. And the next person on the list was the then deputy head of our investment banking division, 
who I was had a very good relationship with. And I went to him and I said, can you believe that I you know, am going to these people? I, the first person on my list, you know who this individual is as well as I do and what his personality is like. Can you believe he gave me this piece of feedback that said I'm too aggressive? I said, I just dismissed that out of hand. And, you know, I'm, but I'd be interested in your point of view about what else I should be thinking about as I try to advance my career. And he said something to me, which has stuck to me to this day, which is that he said, you know, Melissa, you need to have to be a good leader. You really have to have a very high level of self-awareness. You have to be able to step outside yourself and see yourself the way other people see you. And you may not agree with those perceptions. But as my colleague, um, Carla Harris, often says, you know, perception is the co-pilot of reality. And you have to be able to at least acknowledge that those perceptions exist. And in some cases, you know, do something about them or address them so that, you know, you can... Um, um, they, they won't be obstacles or impediments to your success. And so when I thought about the feedback that I'd gotten from this first individual in that context about you know, the fact that I'm a six foot, almost six feet in my bare feet, African-American woman, I'm intimidating to some people, just my physical being, my presence, it can be intimidating at times. When I had that kind of as my um, perspective through which I was considering how I was being perceived, it, it, it allowed me to, to really reflect and, and be more introspective about how I might be coming across in certain settings and environments without the intention to come across that way. And so I think self-awareness is a lesson, you know, learning the lesson of self-awareness was something that was has been invaluable to me. And that would be an example, um, Hetinder, that I would cite. Yeah, that is uh, incredibly powerful and learnable in that for, for all of us, because sometimes we just feel misunderstood by the world and we feel miffed that um, we're not being treated fairly. And, and uh, you had that moment then and then you brought it to this other party and uh, he was able to open you up to a, a much bigger lens of what the parameters of success are. That's that's incredible. So Melissa, I mean, like, was that easy for you to take? Like the idea that, well, it's my responsibility to make sure that this person is not perceiving me in what is clearly the wrong way. I mean, because I've, I've seen sometimes folks react to a moment like that more with like, that's not that's not my responsibility. I don't care. That's their responsibility. But on the other hand, if you don't care, you still suffer the consequences. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think, look, at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that you have to change your personality or change who you are. It doesn't mean that you have to do anything differently. You just have to be aware. That information, the awareness in and of itself is valuable because it will inform your perspective. I mean, the reality is that, you know, like whenever you're talking to an audience or talking to people about something and you're trying to sell or which we do, when you're trying to sell or you're trying to convince people to do something, you have to know your audience, right? And you have to understand what's going to resonate with them. And so I think that it did help me appreciate that there are some environments in which I am going to want to be more mindful, maybe moderate my perspective, maybe make sure that I come across as inclusive. Like one of the things that this individual had told me as well as saying I was aggressive was he said, you know, you seem very aloof. And I thought about that. And I thought, again, back to this point about my presence can be physically intimidating. I don't want to come across as aloof. I certainly don't want to come across as aloof to the junior people that I'm trying to manage. And so if this is how this individual is perceiving me, maybe I don't want to change my behavior with him because maybe actually that's the only style of he understands. But there may be other people that are perceiving me in a similar way and I need to be mindful. And as long as I'm mindful and I know my audience, then I can decide, do I want to alter my behavior or not? So I think it's an appreciation that says, I mean, it's it's absolutely the case. I mean, I would, I would make this other point that the ability to really take constructive feedback or criticism is, it's a gift when you get it, right? Whether you agree with it or not, and you need to view it as such, and you need to reflect on it. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to change what the person is criticizing about you, but you it would behoove you to, to reflect on it. Perfect. You, you mentioned that there was another story you wanted to share, or was it this one? Well, no, this was the, this was the, I thought you were going to, uh, when you were asking me uh, about the other story I, I, or, or to tell a story, I thought it was the one I had told you about um, when I was put in charge at ran our corporate lending business for many years. And it was right after the um, global financial crisis. So there was a lot of turmoil and change that was happening at the leadership ranks. And I got called into the head of the department's office at the time and told that I was going to be running this business. And it was a great opportunity for me. It was a stretch assignment of sorts, although I had been working for the guy who'd been running the business for many years. So it was something that I was eminently capable of doing. And so I stepped into uh, this individual's shoes who had left. 
the firm and was put in charge of this business. And we basically oversaw all of the lending activity and, and you know, underwrote all the, the LBO and acquisition financing that we were doing on behalf of our corporate and financial sponsor clients. And so it was a big responsibility. And somewhat to my surprise, there was another individual who ended up basically running a, a different part of our, our, our lending business. And uh, I guess he had hoped or expected to be able to run the, the whole thing in, in totality. He didn't expect them to kind of divide the business in two and give half to me and half to him. And so he came into my office one day and he said, well, I just want you to know that I wanted to run that part of the business. I think I should be running both parts of the business. And I'm actually going to go tell management that I think I should be running this business. So I'm just letting you know. <laughs> and I thought, wow. I mean, I was actually, I was so taken aback, first of all, that somebody would say that, that he was felt so entitled and, and he felt so deserving of running both parts of the business. And he clearly didn't think that I deserved to run the part that I was given. So I thought that was really, you know, an interesting insight into into one approach that somebody can take who's ambitious and, and looking to advance their career. But I thanked him really for being as transparent with me as he was. And it really enabled me to kind of really think about uh, how I went about doing this business, you know, not to presume that basically I had everybody's buy-in, not to presume that I had everybody's support and to remind me that I needed to go around, again, cultivate those relationships and cultivate those allies to ensure that I did have people's support. So it was, uh, you did me a great favor in the end. Yes, both of these are such gifts to us today. So thank you. I'm curious, uh, you shared in that one story, the heightened awareness that you had to bring to your height, to your race, to your gender, and how all of those factors might interact with the way people receive you or see you or perceive you. I wonder though, as to whether that is the only state that you operate in, or is it the case, and this is my intuition, I could be wrong, so you can correct me, that you also come across to me as someone who will often perhaps be coming from a place where you're just not seeing these superficial differences in people and you're just connecting human to human. And it kind of doesn't matter if the person is senior or junior or short or tall or one race or another or one gender or another. There's just this like lack of almost um, attentiveness to those like outer differences that you possess versus them and more a appreciation of that common human connection? Some of what you're saying is true, but what I would say is that, you know, and I heard one of my colleagues say this recently in a panel that she and I were on together where she said she's an Asian American woman. And she said that basically she doesn't really buy into when people say, I don't see color, right? Because she feels like when people say, I don't see color, she feels like they don't see her, right? She said, because I'm an Asian American woman. So I don't say I don't see difference. I absolutely see difference all the time. But I think what I focus on is basically the commonality. What, you know, we as humanity do have more that basically more in common than we do difference than we then we have differences and I think we sometimes fixate basically on our differences instead of trying to look for those points of intersection or commonality which we share I had a young gentleman for example in my office this is a couple of summers ago who came to me and said he was a summer intern and working at Morgan Stanley and he felt very out of place and he felt like he didn't belong here and he said he came from a very different background and he started to to tell me his story of not being able to relate to anybody that worked in capital markets or was on his team. And I said to him, stop, like, just stop. You know, I said, you are, this was a, a black gentleman. I said, you, you are an athlete. Uh, he'd gone to an Ivy League school. I said, you're, you're, uh, you know, he was a football player at an Ivy League school. I said, you, you went to an Ivy League school. You were a division one athlete. I said, do you know how many people you have something in common with on the floor? Just in those two respects? I said, so stop fixating on just how different you are and start thinking about how much the same you are with some of these people that are out there. And so I think that's the key to just remember that as humanity, there's more that binds us than that divides us. And we need to start focusing on those points of intersection, those points of commonality that bring us together as humanity, as the human race, basically, and not necessarily obsess all the time on the things that, that make us different. What a practical lesson to take from Melissa's story, isn't it? Like you not just shared that larger kind of idea, but also made it very practical through that story about just uh, 
in some situations where you're feeling a little bit distanced uh, to just find some one point of affiliation, some one common theme between their life and your life, like you just help this person identify. Miss, I'm wondering maybe like if you don't mind, can I ask you one closing question to maybe I do as a reflection? Absolutely. So I'm remembering back to this moment where Nelson Mandela, right? So he's in prison and he's been this revolutionary. He's been this rebel. Now he's in prison. Very storied, very respected for all he's doing to help advance humanity, right? In his own way there in South Africa. And he reflects on this kind of like conversation and debate that started to happen between him and other prisoners who'd actually been there like 20 years plus. And then these new folks who had just come into prison from the same movement who were also kind of like wanting to ultimately fight for the cause of dissolution of apartheid. And how these senior folks were like rolling their eyes and saying, you guys don't get it. Like we are the experienced ones, we are the seasoned ones, right? And he said, I took pause because I realized that actually in these young Turks, there was a different kind of fire. And it is possible that we had become kind of a little bit too staid and a little bit too just accepting or something. And whereas with them, there was just a heightened state of what it is that we need to get done and get done now and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very beautiful recollection in his book about you know, a long walk to freedom about how he paused at that point And rather than judge, he started to learn from the young rebels that uh, he had just come into the system. So now if we think about this aspiration, which I'm sure has been part of your journey for a while of wanting to create a, that much more of an equal, receptive, warm kind of world for everyone, for everyone. When you look at this next generation, your own children, these young graduates who are now coming into th this, this person that you were just talking with, this black uh, trader, right? Like, um, what is it that you and I should be learning from them? You know, what have you found perhaps? Well, you know, this is the beauty of having children, I think, because they do teach you all the time. Um, you know, and I say, I often comment that the student has become the teacher when I'm referring to my children. I'll tell you um, an example of basically how I really, sort of a moment when that uh, I, I recognize that very fully. Uh, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, murder, uh, when I was having a conversation with my children, I happened to have three African, I had three black sons. So they very much are in the eye of the storm as it relates to this whole issue around racial justice, just given, you know, the difficulties that black men, generally speaking, have in our society. And so I was trying to explain to my middle son, who, um, you know, was 18 at the time, that uh, he, we were talking about the rioting that was happening across the country as a consequence of the George Floyd murder. And he was sort of admonishing the rioters for basically, you know, taking to the streets and, and engaging in vandalism and, and doing things like that. And, and while I, I wasn't trying to, to justify the vandalism, I was trying to help him understand basically the anger and the frustration that many of these people felt years of having to deal with years of systemic racism and, and oppression and, and discrimination and, and that this was just all coming to the fore and this is how they were kind of exhibiting that frustration. And I just wasn't getting across to him. Like my husband and I were at the kitchen table, like, you know, talking to him and he was saying, well, that's, I, I, you know, you mean to tell me if I was out there in the street and I was basically breaking glass of, of police vehicles that you would, you would condone that you would say that's okay. And I was like, no, uh, Spencer, you're missing the point. And my then 20 year old or 21 year old came along and I asked him to join the conversation. And I was like, can't get across to Spencer the point that I'm trying to make about how these people, how broken they feel the contract, the social contract has been with them and with their community and why they are exhibiting this kind of frustration. And Chris said, my oldest son said to my middle son, okay, Spencer, let me explain it to you like this. He said, you know, I'm a sociology major. I took, you know, a class on sociology on social movements. And they said that there are three different types of social movements. They're peaceful protests which tend to be the most successful kind of social movement. He said now, and then there are basically social movements that involve the destruction of property. And he said, and then there are social movements that involve the destruction of lives. He said, those are wars, basically. And he said, what history has taught us is that peaceful protests are the most successful, but when peaceful protests don't work, actually, the destruction of property at, can, tends to be more successful. He said, look at, for example, the movements of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. He said, one of the reasons why Martin Luther King's peaceful protesting was so successful is because people had a more threatening approach to uh, civil rights and social justice in Malcolm X that was more scary. And as a consequence, they paid more attention. And Mal, you know, Martin Luther King was able to have more uh, impact uh, as a consequence of that. And so he said, let me put it to you another way. Like sometimes the only thing a bully understands is a punch in the nose. And it was like an epiphany. The light bulb went off in my middle son's head. 
And he finally understood what my husband and I had been trying to um, explain to him for hours. And I think that was a moment for me when I said, wow, the, the, all that investment in education for my son has paid off because the student has now become the teacher. That is such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing. I'm so glad that you just didn't answer that question in the abstract, but you brought a real story for us. And uh, it's, it's really powerful. It reminds me of uh, what, what I read once that um, uh, Martin Luther King was once you know, in prison for some of his uh, protests. And Malcolm X visited his hometown and actually came and met with Coretta, his wife. And I think that was the only time that they had uh, a face-to-face, uh, he and uh, uh, Martin Luther King's family, Coretta. And he told Coretta, he said that, uh, please let him know I support him in what he's doing. And that it is my hope that with what I am doing, it will motivate the country to listen more to Martin Luther King and go down his path. So uh, it was, it, it has always struck with me that particular moment in history where Malcolm X and, uh, you know, Martin Luther King's wife met. I think, you know, he got assassinated soon after Malcolm X first, you know. So anyway. That was very, very moving, very moving. Thank you for sharing. And I can only imagine what a powerful moment it must have been in that family circle soon after George Floyd. Thank you so much, Melissa, for bringing so much heart and spirit to, to our community here today. I'm, I'm very, very grateful, very, very moved. And um, I'll just let you have the last word. So what is it that as you see the uh, dream of the future that you would love for your children in our planet and in our nation, what is it that you'd like to leave as a message for all of us to take? Well, I think a great message is that hope springs eternal and keep hope alive. And I think that our children are the future. So I think that we need to value them and educate them and um, embrace them and uh, empower them really to because I think they are the future. And when I that is what I'm hopeful about. I see hope in them. And that is what inspires me. And when I am feeling for whatever reason, demoralized or, or down about something, I, I think to myself, I'm so glad that this next generation is coming along and they will pick up the mantle um, where we left off. Yeah, so beautiful. I'm so glad that we are ending on that note about the next generation with the special light being shed on your own children. Because, um, you know, just look at how your parents have... Uh, influenced and shaped you and brought us to this place where we we are so benefited by leaders like you. And uh, I can only imagine how, in addition to the next several decades of your own direct impact on the world, that uh, even more of that will live on through your children as well. So thank you so much for taking this time and uh, for all the stories and wisdom that you've shared with us. Good luck with the ESG journey, but more broadly as well with your own career and the um, uh, way that you're helping develop and nurture the next generation. <laughs>